Chocula Enthusiasts Club podcast. This week we relive our star interview from the Summer Jaguar Festival with Kevin McLeod. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you. Hope you're well and enjoying the summer in your Jaguars as the world opens up and we're all doing those normal things that we enjoyed to do before. Hope you've had some fantastic events that you've been involved with over the last few weeks. Hope you're enjoying the summer and hope you're enjoying this podcast as this marks our 59th episode already i know it's great that you've stayed with us and continuing to stay with us we've got some really great interviews on the way over the next few weeks also some really exciting events within the club as well of course just a week away from recording this we are heading off to harewood hill climb the longest hill climb in the uk and if you haven't booked yet there's time still Uh, bookings will be closing at midnight on the 15th of august that's sunday from recording this if you haven't booked in advance don't worry you can come along on the day but we just can't guarantee you any track time I'm sure we'll be fine. We just can't guarantee it. There'll be a car show for you to enjoy there. And if you don't fancy herring up the hill, then just sit back, enjoy the views, have some food and wander about the Jaguars, enjoying a nice day in Yorkshire. That's the plan. All the details as ever online at jec.org.uk forward slash events. Also up there, you'll find details of our autumn track day once again returning to Castle Coombe. Now, I mention this because early bird discounts for this event end at the end of August, so you haven't got a lot of time to enjoy those early bird booking discounts. Get online, book yourself on now, jc.org.uk forward slash events. And if you don't fancy taking your Jaguar out on track, don't worry, come down anyway. It's going to be a great show. We've got traders there. We'll be running a show and shine. It's a fantastic thing to watch Jaguars herring past you on the track at Castle Coombe. But also, you might be able to bag yourself a high-speed passenger ride. You might be able to experience a JP1, a Jaguar-powered race car, or maybe if GTs are more your thing, perhaps one of the Palmer Sport XKs that Swallows Jaguar are going to be bringing. And if you're really brave, perhaps you'll be in the passenger seat with our very own Tom Robinson in the championship XJR6 supercharged car that he talks about on this very podcast every week. But... Bring your brave trousers. That's what I would suggest. Uh, Get online, book it now, get yourself some track laps. Novices welcome. If you fancy taking up racing, there'll be ARDS instructors there on the day. It's a really fantastic day out. Enjoying your Jaguar at its limits and safely. And if you've never done a track day before, there'll be loads of support and help there on the day. jc.org.uk forward slash events. Book now to take advantage of those early bird discounts before the end of August. Kevin McLeod, our interview on this episode, reliving the Summer Jaguar Festival at Bista Heritage after our Hall of Fame with Richard West next. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. On this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club Hall of Fame, we are inducting a great pal of ours to the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. In fact, we had him at the Summer Jaguar Festival just a couple of years ago. And you can watch our interview with Andy and indeed with the rest of the Tom Walkinshaw team that we reunited in 2019 by looking at the Jaguar Enthusiast Club YouTube channel. But uh, only right then, Richard, that we induct him into the Hall of Fame. It's long overdue. 
And this is a guy that started from very humble beginnings because he used to cycle to Silverstone to watch the racing. And also he bought his first race car in a car park off the M6. (laughs) (laughs) He did indeed. Andy Wallace. What a guy. I mean, born in 1961 and, you know, turned 60 now. But, uh, yeah, I remember him very fondly, and we shared a lot of those stories. I know you and I talked to him about buying that car. He he went off to a car park. He looked at a racing car, and he said, oh, it looks absolutely fantastic, and he parted with it and drove away. And as he said, as I drove away with it attached to the back of the car, I had absolutely no concept of what I bought or what was needed to run the car. So, like so many people who start off at very low levels of motorsport, you go in there with a lot of enthusiasm. Um, you soon lose some money. And uh, but in Andy's case, clearly became a real force and uh, a gentleman of sports car racing and a very down to earth and honest guy with it. Absolutely. And he was someone that struggled to get into the sport, actually, wasn't he? He, as you say, never had a lot of money. He started racing uh, an FF1600 Hawk, which was basically the cheapest second-hand single-seater car you could buy um, Mm. in about 1980. But he managed to take it on to a championship win in a pre-74 class in 1980. And it was just at the moment where he started to get recognised by by people but he was never one of those drivers that sort of shot to stardom very quickly you got the feeling from him that everything was a struggle it was always short on money and that he really pushed hard to get into formula three and get noticed and make a name for himself within it yeah indeed that's a very good synopsis i mean in those those early days i mean andy you know as a child used to go and watch racing he was always fascinated by racing and he actually started in 79 properly as you say you know in formula ford the thing about formula ford at that time as you know wayne it was hugely hugely well populated and it was a proving ground and i'm probably controversial for saying this but young drivers at the time the british ones didn't seem to get as much as that however talented they were they didn't seem to get as much attention from team owners in the bigger formulas as some of the overseas famous names that came through and therefore you know, we talked about Nigel Mansell recently having to mortgage his house to get a drive, and there are a number of other stories. And in fact, Andy was one of those. And in fact, dare I say this, for such a successful racing driver, he was almost, I think, too much of a nice guy early on, and people just didn't see past that to his obvious talent. And if you look on the internet, you'll find some amazing pictures of him in those that 79 period in Formula Ford, because he actually attended the Jim Russell Racing Driver School to start with in 76. But some of the pictures you see of him in those early days, drifting the car, you know, four-wheel drifts, highly competent, but um, maybe in the early days a little bit too nice in and around the paddock. Well, yeah, I was right. I mean, he learned a lot from the Jim Russell School. He also worked there as well. as one of the ways he funded his way into racing. And, of mm. course... He really came to the fore when he got some journalists at Autosport behind him and they'd noticed that Andy Wallace was someone to watch. He was a young kid then. And then he went on to win the blue ribboned event, the Macau Formula 3 Grand Prix. And he was then later named that year Autosport's National Racing Driver of the Year. Then all of a sudden, a certain Scotsman noticed Andy Wallace (laughs) and he found himself um, being dragged really out of a single seater with no experience at all of sports cars or high speed in comparison to F3 racing at all. Um, and Tom Wilkinshaw obviously had a huge amount of faith in, in Andy. He obviously saw something, but he did realise there was some inexperience there. And I guess this is where the partnership between 
Andy Wallace and Jan Lammers really helped because Jan Lammers took him under his wing in effect didn't he Yes, he did. And I think the, the point you referred to about, yeah, again, Tom Corkinshaw finding more talent. Andy, being being quite an unassuming character, and you and I have talked about this before, you know how matter-of-fact he is when you ask him what it's like to do 245 miles an hour on a foggy Molson straight. You know, you, you just get a very laconic answer, but very informative at the same time. And I think this is one of the reasons Tom picked Andy up, because, as we've talked about again in previous chats we've had, Sports car racing is very, very much a team effort. And you know, unlike some of the superstars in single-seater formulas, you need to be aware that you've got four, six, eight, twelve teammates, you know, in the case of Le Mans. And I think Tom not only saw Andy's raw talent, but he also was very taken by his slightly understated nature. And, of course, that fitted in well with the more experienced drivers. And as you rightfully say, he and Jan hit it off with a great friendship. And Jan, with his experience and knowledge of sports car racing, eased Andy in as you say from that Formula 3 seat into something that was capable of almost 250 miles an hour overnight and it's that honesty that uh, Andy uh, gives when you interview him that has given us some of the insights into that 1988 in particular Jaguar win at Le Mans Mm. it must have been an incredible moment for a young driver to be getting to grips with a Group C Le Mans prototype and 88 was his first year and and then he wins Le Mans um, it's literally from zero to hero isn't it overnight um, but he managed to deal with it all and his, and his personality remained that very jovial honest unassuming self didn't it it did and the, the way he, the way he came in and the fact that the team was we, again I've used the phrase three times already we've talked about before the TWR team was built around a great spirit of openness and friendship and loyalty to each other. And Andy fitted that mold absolutely perfectly. And the support that he received and the information he received, you know, from Tom, the drivers, the engineers, all the guys involved in those programs just allowed him to shine. And uh, I remember when I joined the team in 89, you know, I met him very shortly after joining. And he just walked up and he said, you know, hi, I'm Andy Wallace. I said, yeah, man, nice to see you again, Andy. We'd met years before. And he said, welcome to the team. You know, you'll find everybody really friendly. And he was just so warm and welcoming. And I think because of Jan's character as well, who's another super guy uh, who's already in our Hall of Fame, I, I just think that he gelled with the team and gelled with Tom as a result of that. Well, he had a fantastic career with Tom Walkinshaw Racing that took him right the way through the 1990s. And he also had a great career partnering up with Jan Lammers. They even drove for Toyota in 92 and 93 and went on to then uh, move through the various sports car fields. He, you get the feeling that was his, it was his comfortable place, his happy place as a driver of sports cars, don't you? Oh, very much so. I mean, if you look back at some, you know, he was a Dave Price Racing Panels, Motorsport, Team Cadillac, Team Bentley, Racing for Holland, Toyota Team Tom, Silkcut Jaguar. I mean, you can just go on and on and on with Andy's drives over the years. But I think he was so, as we just said, he was such a natural team player that he became somebody that virtually everybody wanted in their team at some stage throughout his active career because he had great experience, you know, won Daytona three times. I mean, the 24 hours of Daytona and uh, won Le Mans as well, as you just rightly said. He then went on with Bentley and did the job again, you know. So, I mean, an incredible career. And when you've got those credentials and you've got that level of experience, it's hardly surprising that as you get older, you find yourself as Bugatti's official test driver and customer VIP liaison person. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I have very strong memories of 2001 when the Bentleys arrived in LMP1, as it was fairly new mm. then. And you just mm. got the feeling that was that recreation of the energy that Jaguar and TWR had brought to Le Mans for the British fans at that time. Uh, the Bentley boys had all their flags up around the circuit that year. And there was a real sort of <laughs> gathering around that team. And, of course, mm. Andy Wallace was there as a part of it. But uh, I think I interviewed him for the first time in about 2000. 2009-2010 when he was racing for uh, what was then the RML X-Power MG car in LMP2 mm. which was really a, a Lola underneath the skin but he partnered mm. that brilliantly and then the roles mm. had changed because he was then the mentor to Mike Newton and Tommy Erdos. And, of course, they had a podium finish in 2010 in that P2 car. Mm. Yeah, they did indeed. And in fact, for those not familiar, RML Ray Malik, um, the son you know, the famous man of the Malik sports car range or racing car range, uh, an incredibly well-run team. And again, you know, Ray obviously spotted not only Andy's abilities behind the steering wheel, but he used all of that experience we've just been talking about to get behind Mike Newton and Tommy Erdos and, you know, drive them on to better things, if you'll excuse the pun. It was at that interview where he revealed to me a fantastic tale of Le Mans that I shall never forget. And it was uh, an, an interview that I was doing for an audience that uh, are not as quite as well healed in the world of motorsports as our audience here on the JEC podcast. So I was asking them really, um, drivers, to explain what it was like driving on a very dark circuit. And he was talking about going down the Molesam Strait late at night in the pitch dark and finding the breaking point and the turning point for Molesam Corner, which is like a first, second gear corner. It's very, very slow. It's like a 90 degree. And you're doing about 30 to 40 mile an hour around that corner, having come down from 200 plus just seconds before. And most media trained racing drivers these days would say something like, you know, how much they trained and that... Um, they were very confident in their abilities. Not Andy, very honestly, says, basically, I look for the 100-metre board, I close my eyes, I break and I turn in, and usually the corner is where I left it the last time around. <laughs> and <it's, laughs> I'll never forget that explanation of most of these drivers do use their gut instincts to drive these cars. Fascinating, I thought. They do indeed, but it's interesting you mentioned that 240-plus Molsan because in Andy's career, he's done some remarkable things in testing as well. I mean, he held a record for 11 years in a McLaren F1, which for over 11 years was the world's fastest production car, straight-line speed of 240.1 miles an hour. But if that wasn't enough, on the 2nd of August, back in 2019, he set the record of 300 miles an hour in a hypercar. Uh, it was, it's on YouTube, you can watch it, and I know at the time, as part of the Top Gear coverage, but the certified speed of 490.48 kilometres an hour, which is 304 miles an hour just over, was in a modified Bugatti Chiron. And funnily enough, as, he, as you did with him, I said to him, what was that really like? And he just smiled and said, pretty quick, really. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, a, a great guy and a really, really worthy inductee to our Hall of Fame. I trust you'll agree. Absolutely. Turn 60 this year. Andy Wallace. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Recorded at the Summer Jaguar Festival at Bista Heritage in July, this is Kevin McLeod in conversation with me, 
on the show's live stage. I've been renovating a house recently, and this man has some very tough questions to answer, let me tell you, because I got inspired by one of them TV programmes. Well, that TV programme was, in fact, Channel 4's Grand Designs, and this man has been presenting it for well over 20 years now. So, a big, warm Summer Jaguar Festival welcome, please, to Kevin MacLeod. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now thank then. You. Is this just a quick Q&A on <laughs> DIY tips? Is yes. that all it is? Well, I will start with the TV programme, and we are going to get onto your amazing car, because you have come in an amazing icon of Jaguar's history, and a lot of people might not realise certain bits about your car that are interesting. But let's start with the last series of Grand Designs, it must have been a strange one for you because there you were in the middle of the pandemic still watching people build houses. Some of them started before it all kicked off with no idea what was going to befall their project. Yeah. Some of the projects we filmed had been going for like four years and we're just on the cusp of being finished, so that was good. Some had started in the pandemic and because they'd started early, that was fine. We're now due to deliver another series in September and these are projects which have been running over the last year and a half in a period in which we've had the perfect storm of COVID, Brexit, um, and the supply chains across Europe just kind of evaporating, which means now that we have something like 23 projects on the go, none of which will ever, ever finish. <laughs> and all we're gonna do now for the next 15 years, I think, is just go back and see the same projects sort of slowly inch forward. You know, because things like steel, I mean, steel has doubled in price since May. So that's two months. And, and concrete suppliers are now saying to their customers, well, we can deliver in three weeks, we think, but we're not going to commit to a price till the week before. And if you want four by two timber, you can now buy it. But a month ago, you couldn't. There was none in the country. Even sterling board, which is the cheapest, crappiest product you can buy, you know, oriented strand board, you know, the thing, that orange chip board, yeah? There's a kind of global shortage because there's like most of the factories in Sweden have stopped production. There's one facility in Scotland making it, and they're so over, they're so overworked they can charge whatever they like for it. So it's now going, it's now going for for the price of mahogany veneer. You know, I mean, most of those projects in good times often started on rocky ground, didn't they? And it's interesting to see you give some of those people a real hard time sometimes on projects that, I suppose naivety is the word that they often approach them. And have you seen that over the years? Do you pick people like that on purpose to think, well, this might go wrong for a sense of jeopardy? You see, you call it naivety. I just call it human nature because we, we all are driven by hope and optimism. And if we weren't, we'd slid our wrists or we'd, you know, we'd go and live in a cave like hermits. It, it's hope and optimism which drives us forward. Hope is the great human uh, driving force which takes us to the edge of the cliff and then very quietly and gently just pushes us off, you know? Anyway, rocky ground is a brilliant place to build a house. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, that's it. One of the places, of course, uh, that you visited in the last series was in the Fens, which is far from rocky, very wet, in fact. And there was an, an example of a young couple uh, coming into property ownership together for the first time. Uh, one of the others that really stood out in the last series was the young couple that had struggled with cancer, the pair of them. And despite physical weakness, the pandemic, and the fact that they were more vulnerable than others, still soldiered on and made that barn into a house. 
Greg, Greg and Georgie, yeah. And the other couple were in Fens. That, that was an amazing story about family because he was not only building a house for himself but also for his mother who was in a, in a caravan in a caravan park and her partner. And uh, So it was all about you know, family connections and, and creating that safe haven to be in. Uh, Greg and George's story was amazing because they, they both battled cancer and she was still on a lot of therapy and, and, and yet she was driving the dumper while he was driving the digger um, and then going off for her treatment the next day. So it was a real, a real story of how, you know, inspiring. Not just how hope and optimism drives people but actually how that positive energy that human, humans have can infect others. It's a real, you know, for me that's what Grand Designs is about. After the first series, I had a great producer, a great friend of mine, John Silver, and we used to go and we used to do stuff like this on stage at design events, and um, and we'd be asked, you know, what makes it tick? And I would say, ha, it's all about the architecture. It's architecture and design. And John would say, no, 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 it's people. These are people stories about humans, the human narrative, and the forces that make us positive creatures. You know. Anyway, after about two years of this. I found myself on stage answering the same question, but saying, it's the people, it's the people. And John was saying, no, no, it's the architecture. It's the same with cars though, isn't it? You know, we do love to look at cars. We appreciate how they're built. We appreciate their beauty, but actually, especially when I'm interviewing people like yourself and others that we'll have on the stage throughout today, people who I interview on the Jag Enthusiast Club podcast, what makes a car come alive is when it interacts with people and memories are made within it. It's the same as buildings in that sense. It is, absolutely. And I draw a lot of analogies with cars, and I would do far many more pieces to camera with cars if they allowed me to talk. I have to resort to using food often instead. But the, the, the point about the car is it's just a lump of metal, yeah? And the experience of driving it is the experience of driving it. And you could sort of get in one, and it's the same as in another, maybe. Look, there are 682 E-types over there, yeah? And I, I'm, that looks like that looks like Jaguar's car pound in, in you know in in the 1971 fuel crisis. <laughs> um, were they still making them in 71? They were, weren't they? Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah, not being able to shift them. But the um, but my point being is that. Um, so I, I'm working on a car at the moment, which is not a Jaguar, therefore I am bound contractually to not mention its name. But I'm working on a car, actually there's a pair of cars, and I'm trying to get them up together, right? And they're, they're not British, and the point being I had to find somebody who could make tubular, oval tubular steel chassis members in high molybdenum steel. And I found this lady in Italy who is the granddaughter of the man who invented high molybdenum steel ovoid chassis components, um, a man called Gilberto Colombo. And anyway, so she said, yeah, we can sell it to you. We'll, we do a minimum run of 500 meters and it's going to cost you 17,000 pounds. And I said, but I only need like, you know, eight meters for the middle of the car. And, and she said, I tell you what, if you send me photographs of the chassis and of the car when you finished it, um, I'll, I'll, I'll just get the rollers out and we'll roll you up a special batch. And this was the managing director of a firm in the middle of Italy saying this. And I said, great. So we sort of entered into that informal contract and she rolled out the steel. And as a result, Serena Omodeo now owns 15% of that car. And you cannot ever remove her contribution to that car from the car. And, and my, my point is this, is that what makes these special is, is the history, is the narrative, is the input of 
Bernie or Mike or Ronald or whoever helped you fix the engine that day or do you know what I mean? And I kind of think what's most in, almost for me, almost, but almost as important as the car for me is to make, is to write up a story about it, is to sort of, is to, is to make sure that that story continues to go with the car. It doesn't matter how lowly the car is really. It's got, if it's been abroad, you want to write up that story. If it's, if it's, had somebody as lovely as Serena Amadeo supplying you the steel. You know, by the way, I haven't sent her the photographs because this is the car still isn't finished. This is four years on, right? And that's part of the narrative. It's like one of the houses. We'll keep coming back to you in years to come to see how it's getting on. Exactly. But I can see the enthusiasm that you, that you talk with when you're talking about craftsmen and using materials there. And, and I think that comes from your past, actually, because tell us about your dad, because I have a feeling that the shadow he has cast over the rest of your life is what gives you that enthusiasm for innovation and materials and craftsmanship. Tell us his story. Well, my dad was a, an engineer. He was an electronics engineer. He went to work for English Electric, and then he went to work for British Aircraft Corporation, and they built satellites and rockets, and he ended up testing rockets and testing satellites and, and just devising ways of destruction testing them to the point where they would explode, you know, or break. Um, not always popular with these colleagues, but the point is that, that you know, that kind of, kind of military-grade testing approach um, you kind of helped drive us through the 50s and 60s and actually helped drive, you know, kind of the British aerospace industry. So, you know, Rolls-Royce and Marconi and other great British companies involved in aerospace were, you know, Concorde was the result of, if you like that. And in fact, Dad worked for a bit on, on Concorde, on the test systems for that. So, um, yeah, and he got me into cars. And my Sunday mornings were spent uh, sitting in the Wolseley with you know, literally sitting for an hour doing nothing with his head under the bonnet telling me to occasionally press one of three pedals. That's it. And, and that was Sunday mornings. And uh, I, I make no apology for the fact that when I drive an old car, when I'm under the bonnet of an old car, I am with my dad. It's that simple. It connects me completely, purely, directly to him. So my next question would then obviously be, how did you end up in building design instead of being an engineer or a mechanic or something? I'm hopeless at engineering. I'm really crap. <laughs> I was an art historian, you know? I could write words and look at pictures and paint. And, um, and that, that's where my, you know, that's where my skill set sort of lay. And I wish in a way I had, my brothers are much more mechanically minded than I am. And I wish I had got more into it. And I, I, in a way, you know, the last, 10 years of my life have been a frantic and rather futile attempt to try and improve my skill set. So I'm here today with um, Mike Mercer, who from Auto Classico in Bristol, a big jag business. And um, Mike, I, I daren't go anywhere now without Mike. I'm thinking of asking him to come and help me fix the dishwasher later. It's, you know, it, it's just... support crew, basically. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, in life it's a good idea, isn't it? You know, to have a few people around you. And I think it's, it's, it's really helpful. Um, yeah, no, 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 I mean, we went on holiday uh, two years ago around Europe uh, as, a, as a family trip, and we took a few old bangers. Mike came with us. Well, wow, that's taking it to the extreme. You have to take your mechanic on holiday with you. <laughs> so, such is the confidence in your car. Uh, I don't think we can all do that. But um, take us to that point then. Over 20 years ago, which must be an astonishing thing for you to think about, when 
this moment came when Grand Designs came knocking. How did that come about? Did you ever imagine it would turn into the sort of stalwart of British TV that it is now? Well, at the time, everybody was making makeover television, which is very easy to make because you have a fixed time and a fixed budget and you've got an outcome that you can guarantee. And Carol Smiley. Yeah, and you've got Carol Smiley. Well, you did, yeah, yeah. And Lawrence, who's never gone away, you know. And the point about that kind of approach is that it puts the television production company in charge. So you know you're going to get an outcome. Whereas with Grand Design, somebody somewhere forgot to read the back page of the proposal, which was that we don't know how long it's going to take to do. And we don't know if it will ever be finished. And there are, of course, projects that we haven't completed, you know, or some which have taken six or eight years. And in a way, I find those projects the most gratifying because they, they're the ones where you see time really pass. You know, you see children grow up and people get older and and people have come to realize that the house they were building was a complete mistake because actually all the children have left. <laughs> yeah. um, so, or, or there's a huge staircase in it and actually by the time they finish they need a, you know, a standard stair lift instead. But the, the, nobody would commission it now for that reason because it's, it's a sort of, it's an open-ended book. And, and I kind of think, I used to think that the reason why we're still going is that people still enjoy watching it. But I now realize it's because we've got this forward we've got this book of projects going forwards into time and it's like it's like a treadmill we can never get off now we can never complete them all yeah it is an amazing thing and i've worked in television spheres and i know what script writers have to do to get shows commissioned i'm looking at john lakey down there he's done this same job as well you know and to try and get go into a, a tv uh, station and get a show commission that has absolutely no end point. Oh, and by the way, we're going to be following stories that will only cover one episode over three or four years. Logistically, how do you even manage to do that with film crews? How do you keep track of it all? Really, really slowly. <laughs> so I've tried doing television, like, you know, like, which is weekly. I've done live television and I've done stuff which is turned around in six months, you know, and it's incredibly stressful. And the lovely thing about Grand Designs is we work with the same, I've worked with one of the sound guys for 25 years, you know, and we're still going. And it's the same small crews, it's everybody's slow burn. We do stop for lunch, which in television is unheard of these days. And we, we, t we pace ourselves so as not to burn ourselves out. And, um, and we chew through directors, of course, you know, they come and go, we suck the maximum juice out of them, then spit them out. Um, so I do, in a leech-like way, tend to thrive off the energy of other people around me, you know. I have to, and after 20 years. But it, it's important to, it's important actually, seriously, to thrive off the energy of the projects because each one is different. And in a way, it's in selecting the projects and ensuring that we have that, a different story to tell every time that we maintain the enthusiasm and the, you know, the, the, the energy of the, of the project and keep going. Because slow burn is hard in telly. Everybody does, does short-term stuff, you know. Do you ever look at a project and think, actually, that's going to be too easy for those guys? They'll, they'll do it too easily. We won't bother filming it. Uh, or is there always a bit of jeopardy? And, and also, after 20 years, do you now sit there as a kind of experienced person who's watched so many properties be developed and sit back and go, nah? You're not going to do it in that time. Do you, do you feel that kind of guidance that you're able to give people now? I say that in every film. <laughs> and I say, and nobody listens to me. And I'm usually proved right, and I go on and I, I learn, and I you know, try and proffer advice. And still, 
nobody listens because because of that hope and because of that optimism because we all think that when we're going to do it it's going to be perfect it's going to be great you know and i'm just a a doom monger and i'm i'm just trying to help people um very gently you know um what was the first half of the question well uh, do you do you ever turn down a project because it looks too easy oh well is that possible well, it, no no project is too easy i we, i don't like to film checkbook architects you know where somebody says oh we're in a real hole I need a hundred thousand pound more. I'll just write a check. Um, th that's never exciting. But what's exciting is when people say we've got no money and we've got eight months or a year and a half, or whatever, and, and the kids are moving back home, and um, th that's exciting because it involves people figuring stuff out. You know, the best kind of design is stuff that has been carefully considered. It's it's usually quite cheap to do. When people are in a real hole and a pickle, then actually thinking their way out of that is always more interesting, isn't it, than, than just spending their way out of it. And so I think, um, yeah, there's no, there's no such thing as a dull project, just as there is no such thing as a dull human being. I mean, there are plenty of people who go on too long, but there's no such thing as a dull human being. A very big question, I suppose, but one that they, people must ask themselves as they, they do these projects, why do people do it? What do you think? Why? We need, a, we need houses. We need places to live. And it's also one of the last big adventures we all think we can go on. Yeah. Why do people restore cars? Why do people take 10 years restoring a car? You know, I was hoping you were going to go down well, that line. Well, <laughs> you know, it's the garage. It's somewhere to escape. It's somewhere, you know, and I don't mean from you know, other people in your life, but I mean it's somewhere to, to imagine, to find... Yeah, look, we could drink ourselves stupid every night, couldn't we? You know, there, there are different ways of finding nirvana, of finding happiness, of finding the pleasure. And in doing stuff, of course, we all connect with that Maslow's idea of flow. You know, the idea that you, you know, you're, you're in a... Suddenly you look up and four hours have elapsed and you don't know where the time's gone. And it's because you're so engaged with the process. And that is the same with building. And it's an opportunity for expression. And it's, for many people, of course, it's an opportunity to, to make something and to improve the quality of their lives and to provide for those who they love. So, I, you know, I, I think there are good, proper, genuine reasons. People also like to show off. And people also like to build themselves monuments. And those are silly reasons to build. Um, but I think... The, the purest, most noble reasons are, are absolutely, yeah, they're the most fascinating ones. Yeah. Exactly the same reasons why people restore cars yes. and, you know, spend so much time preserving uh, vehicles from history. And I suppose that leads me into my next question. I've seen you get very cross when people try and preserve buildings and don't do it right. Where's the line between, and this applies to cars as well, preserving something and changing it beyond recognition? Yeah, so I am a, I'm an ambassador for the Society for Protection of Ancient Buildings, of which no doubt many of you are members. I, actually, any, if anybody is a member of the SBAB, if you could put your hand up, that would be so heartwarming. Uh, oh, we got one, uh, two, three. No, no, he's lying, he put two hands up. There's a, a gentleman at the back. That's the point, no one's heard of it. It's almost the oldest conservation body in the world. Uh, founded by William Morris in the 1870s. And, it's a, and it stands for so many good things, but it's essentially about 
helping us try and make sense of our past. And we don't do that if we fake history. And we don't do that if we cover it up and obliterate it. We, so I'm all about the narrative. I think you've got, we've established that, yeah? Um, the storytelling, the story in something, and its value, that's, that's where it, it's come from. That, that's where it lies. It's in the story. And it's the same with all of these. I can guarantee that every single one of those E-types over there, yes, they're all different colors, and they've all got different grills, and they're from different years and different bits of chrome on them. But fundamentally, what differentiates them is who's owned them, where they've been, what they've done. And, and what the drives have been like, who's restored them, you know, what's the story behind that? And that's when it starts to get interesting in my view. So if you, if you I, I'm not a fan of restoration of buildings or cars. I don't understand why I would want a car to look and feel as though it has just rolled off a production line in 1965. Now there are many people who like that, but I like a little bit of patina you know, I like a little bit of, uh, you know, I like, I'm more of the oily rag school. I'm very fussy about finish, and I do like a great paint finish, and I'm, you know, I love that ceramic thing they do now, and, you know, and I like well-storted chrome and beautiful leather, and I restore my own leather, and I, you know, I'm guilty sometimes of taking it a bit too far, you know, a bit too new. Um, so, um, I, I can't, I sort of, I understand the addiction you know, the, the pull of the idea of making this as perfect as possible. But the danger is in doing that we also lose the narrative, we lose the story. And I love coming across a car that's got beaten up old seats, you know. That just, that, and, it went, and a few stickers in the window that tells you that it did a rally in, in Belgium in 1973. And, and all of a sudden it's magical. Every scuff, every cut, every mark has a story. I was there in such and such a year when yeah. that happened. In my case, they're usually when I reversed into something. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, let's talk about your cars because you're on this stage, not just because you are uh, a favorite to many through Grand Designs, but because you are like us infected with a terrible illness and that is you are a Jaguar fan and it's uh, once you've got it you can't get rid of it so firstly run us through the fleet <laughs> the fleet so I own two rusting hulks which one day will be well actually I think they're probably gonna have to turn into one glorious car in the end you know we have to raid one for the other and I'm hoping that no, in within five years and I'm, I'm being optimistic here, that it might join, you know, this beautiful fleet here. Um, yeah, so that's, anyway, that's, that, that's hope and ambition embodied there, right? That, that cliff again. That cliff, <laughs> right? Um, and I've got, however, I've got two runners, and they're both here. And one is a, a 1976 Jag Coupe, XJ6. And I have to say that in a bit of a kind of, you know, geezer, because it, yeah, yeah. it's a geezer car. Um, <laughs> And that is, that's um, like most coupes, that's two-tone, two you know. It's, it's, it's metallic grey and on the sills, rust. Vinyl roof? Vinyl roof, yeah, vinyl roof. Um, it had a paint job 10 years ago, previous and it did that. But you've got to remember this is a 76 car, therefore made from water-soluble steel. And, um, you know, you have, to, you have to repaint them regularly. And somebody said to me this morning, yeah, they rust from the inside out. And I thought, yeah, you're right, because the floor pan underneath the car looks really good, but underneath the mats, it's rusting inside the car. How is that? It's, of course, it's leaks, that's why. Um, so. It's a, it's a hilarious car, it's very beautiful. As Jay Leno said, it's the most beautiful car in the world when the, the windows are down. And I, what I can say is it's also, 
when the windows are down, it can also be the wettest car in the world because the relay's gone on the windows and you can't get them up again. So th that's, you know, um, a joy, but, you know, it's work in progress as they all were then. And um, the other car is a, a real sweetheart of mine. And, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> I'm getting emotional about it now. Um, it's a 1931 Swallows bodied Wolseley Hornet. The reason I bought it is because my dad had a Wolseley. It's the car I sat in. But what I didn't realize when I bought it is that Swallows, of course, became SS cars, and which became then Jaguar. And um, so I'd like to think it might be the earliest Jaguar here. It's a Wolseley engine and chassis, but it's got a Swallows body on it. Well, Wolseley is a name that goes back to the very, very early days, of course, of motoring in Britain. And in 1927, they were taken over by Morris. And the Morris Minor was already in existence way back in the late 1920s. They used the engine from that Morris Minor. I thought, I tell you what, we could make a sports car here. And it has the accolade that not many Jaguar fans might know of being, in effect, Sir William Lyons' first sports car. And it has a six-cylinder engine, the first of the six-cylinder Sir William Lyons cars. But it's a funny little engine. It's 1.3 litres, 1.3 litres, yes. Yeah. It's currently mine's one point... Uh, no, mine's about 900 cc's, because it's... We discovered that on the way here, the head gasket between cylinders three and four has gone. So I'm working on 60% power at the moment. I can see why that car appeals to you, because... In the late 1920s, it was all about the expression of these small companies taking vehicles that were easy to come by, they were commonplace on the market, but adding an extra layer of design, an extra layer of customization. They were, in effect, the first customized cars. Yeah, I mean, we, th we think of cars um, as being very specifically allied to brands, you know, and the name is, is made by that firm. And of course, you know, in the 30s, they were all, so many of these small manufacturers were, were sharing not only components, they were sharing workforce. You know, people from uh, Feltham, Aston Martin were moonlighting at Marandaz's factory next door, you know. Uh, engines were being swapped. Uh, parts would, you know, would magically move over the road from one factory to another overnight. And, um, and so there was a huge amount of collaboration between the, the, the manufacturers in the early days. Um, by the way, thank you so much for telling me all about the history of my car, which I'd forgotten. <laughs> And um, that, um, but the, uh, the, the straight six is a beautiful, sweet engine, absolutely. And uh, the other thing you would remember also is I think at that time, you know, as, it, as is the case today, with different manufacturers sharing um, the same engine, the same platform, is that engine development is really expensive. So, and as it was then, so people would nick, borrow engines from Meadows or Continental in America or whatever, and, and just get hold of what they can and build cars around that. And this was a, this was Wolseley, yeah, developing that, a, a, what became actually a very successful sports car over the, the course of the 30s. And the other thing I'm very struck by is the fact that we, we now think of the car as being very much engineered by one firm. So. Um, you would buy a, 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 a modern Jaguar, for example. You know, so much of that is made in a supply chain which is belonging to Jaguar. It's kind of theirs, it's controlled by them. And in the 30s, even in the 50s and 60s, you know, you, you assembled cars from all kinds of supplies. You went to Orford and Brown or whatever, or, you know, Salisbury Axle Company in Birmingham or whatever to get your bits. And, you, and then you commissioned your chassis from a 
factory over there, and then you got your bodywork made over here. And that tradition still exists, or still, there's still an echo of that in Italian car manufacturing, because, uh, for example, in Alfa Romeo uh, and Ferrari and Maserati, there was a tradition right through the 60s and 70s of building chassis with engines and actually then farming out the bodywork and the trim to third-party companies like Touring of Milan or Gear or, or Zagato. Of course, for us, Gear is a bit of badge engineering now, uh, as, as so much of those, those names are. But uh, it was happening in the UK. So that little Wolseley of mine um, actually has about five different incarnations according to which small bodyworks company working in canvas and plywood uh, rebodied it. And they were, they were sold very specifically by those companies as their versions of the Wolseley Hornet, you know. And there was a kind of cachet in buying that particular bodied car, you know. And it, it gets sanctioned, as it were, by the, by the Wolseley company. It's sad, really, that when you look at the history from that point on, that collaboration between all those small craftsmen turned into conglomeration, I guess, and BMC came along, and that was ultimately what caused us problems in the British motor industry, because when craftsmen work together, but in their individual styles, that's when the magic happens, really, and your car's an example of that, and the SS story is an example of that. Yeah, and it's not just, a, when we think of craftsmen, we think of people carving bits of wood, but we're, we should be talking about people standing underneath a, a 1930s turret mill, engineering crown wheels, you know, for their diffs. Um, or, 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 by the way, I did read recently how people are now rebuilding Spitfire aeroplanes in America, and just thanks to the tolerances of modern engineering standards on standard engineering machinery, they're able to achieve something like a 20 to 30% power increase from the Merlin engine because they were so rattly and loose and, you know, in the 30s, of course, built to uh, less demanding tolerances, you know, thanks mainly to the fact that the turret mills were themselves rather wobbly, you know, and everything was a little bit looser. So, in fact, if you look at if you look at historical vehicles, like old buildings, it's a miracle they're still there and you begin to appreciate actually they are, are only still there thanks to the eye and the judgment of the people operating those mills to know what was acceptable and what wasn't, what, what would work, what tolerance was appropriate, what wasn't. And of course even more remarkable that your car is there because of course it would have been quite old in relative terms as the Second World War dawned and of course any old car that wasn't being used would have been melted down and turned into bits of Spitfire. So anything really pre-war that exists, it's a real privilege to see it and an even bigger privilege to own. And of course next year, ladies and gentlemen, a bit of an exclusive for you here, we will be celebrating the anniversary of SS, Swallow Sidecars, and we'll be taking the Summer Jaguar Festival to Wappenbury Hall, the home of the man behind Jaguar, Sir William Lyons, and also a special tour to Blackpool as well to celebrate the very early beginnings of Jaguar. Uh, whether they were building on a Wolseley platform like your car, whether they were building on a uh, Austin 7 like the very first uh, Swallows, or of course the deal that was done with Sir John Black over at the Standard Motor Company later on uh, to build those cars on the standard chassis, what would then become of course the SS 100 sports car, and then after the war, the Jaguar. As you look back on all of that era of cars, and as you look back on your own enjoyment of classic cars, um, what is it for you about older cars 
that sucks you in? Is it that connection with your dad? Is it the connection with the design? What is it that gets you up in the morning to go and work on the Wolseley in the, in the garage? I, I, I left home this morning. We left home at uh, quarter to seven to get here, to pick, get the car, get it sorted, and drive here. And it took two hours from Bristol with stops, and that was pretty good. Um, and considering the last 20 miles were on 60% power, I was very pleased. We made it. And there is, and I've, I've been thinking about this over the last 24 hours, because last night I planned my route, right? And, and we followed it. I memorized the road numbers to get here, because you can't look down from driving a car like that at your sat-nav or your, your phone and start fiddling, you know. It's two hands on the wheel all the way. And um, I, I tell you what I love about it, and, and it occurred to me on the way here today, in, it was spitting with rain, it was a grey sky, and I was driving down, uh, up past Sirencester, I think it was the A442, it's a beautiful straight Roman road, and I suddenly realised I had this massive grin on my face. And I was doing, I think at that point, 50 miles an hour. I, I, what I love about these cars is that you can sling them around country lanes, you can go around a roundabout and the back will kick out a bit, and, um, and when you, you change gear, you've got to double the clutch, you know, sometimes on the way up as well. And, and everything about the vehicles is mechanical and demands your attention. So I find myself looking at the little, little meter on the bonnet, you know, how hot is it? Looking at the oil pressure, oil, oil temperature, ammeter, which is floating slightly below where it should be at the moment, because it's got a vertical dynamo built in 1931. And all of these things add, if you like, they add the jeopardy, they add the sort of the tension, because at any one point, if the, if the oil pressure drops too much, you know you've got a problem. Modern cars, they just don't have any of this. Um, gloriously, if you, if you want to drive a modern car, to get any thrill out of it, you've got to break the speed limit. You've got, to, you've got to endanger yourself and other people. I have no problem about endangering myself, but I, I don't want to be throwing stuff around lanes, you know, at stupid speeds. And what's glorious about old cars is, as you do so, as you're having enormous fun, this, you're enjoying the roar, the smell, the, the every sensory input that you can imagine. You're totally focused and engaged with this machine. There is no, there's no safety systems, there are no kind of remotes, there are no, there's power assisted, nothing between you and the road. And you look down and you're doing 35 miles an hour. And that is sweet joy. Someone asked me last weekend, why do you do, I was doing a historic sporting trial, which is nutters like us go and take vintage cars and throw them up hillsides on an endurance trial. And someone asked me, you know, why, why would you do that? And, and my simple answer was, life's busy, uh, life's stressful, but when you're behind the wheel of a car like that, you can think of nothing else. It kind of cleanses the mind, doesn't it? <laughs> do you find you, the same? You can't think about anything else. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it absolutely does. It's that distraction of the, again, being totally in the zone. And if you pop out of it, start, you lose it. And the car's on the other side of the road or in a hedge. So you, it, it's totally focused and very, very, very demanding. And I, that, I, I find that the rigor of that, uh, of driving like that, and, I, and actually, in a sense, also pushing the car. So on a straight, trying to get it to 60, you know, trying to get it, uh, you know, gently coaxing it and coaxing yourself into, into as you get more and more comfortable with it. Um, all of that is, is really, it's, it's hugely important. And it's the same in an E-Type, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's you know, we, we are insulated from the driving experience in modern cars. And, and I suspect that so much of what we all connect to here is that the idea of contact. 
I'm glad I got you on driving because the very first series of Grand Designs, I was struck by this sort of designer character of Kevin McLeod who would turn up to these buildings being, being built in your TVR Tuscan, very, very flamboyant. Uh, these days, if it's an Astra, that's posh. What happened, Kevin? <laughs> well, the TVR wasn't mine. Ah, it okay. was TVRs. I love TVRs. They're, I call them reverse kit cars because you buy a complete <laughs> car and it slowly disassembles itself <laughs> in ownership. And um, I, so it, it was actually Peter Wheeler's car who, you know, really? ran. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know this because I was stopped by the police in Vauxhall one night and they said, excuse me, sir. And I was, you know, in my 30s at that point, he says, we just noticed, sir, that this car is registered to Peter Wheeler. I said, really? I had no idea. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, 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 they got it for the series. And, and um, now, I, I think some nerd counted the fact that I'd driven something like 63 different Vauxhalls <laughs> on Grand Designs. Because they're not, I, I turn up, I, I get the train, yeah, normally. And so I turn up in a taxi and for the driving shots they give me their crew car you know the one that all the, the they've been driving around in clean it out and so they rig it with cameras and that's the one i drive to turn up and for a brief sweet moment i mean it was something like six months we had a jaguar i-pace which was exquisite i love driving that i drove it for three miles in six months <laughs> mainly usually it's something between 15 and 20 miles an hour so i was just driving into somebody's drive you know and that was it so it made the series, which was lovely, and it is a beautiful car, and it is the future, of course. And um, uh, now I drive everywhere in a camper van. Yes, of course, no hotels when you're No that hotels, yes. no trains, no planes, <laughs> no taxis, camper van. So the camper van has yet to appear on screen, <laughs> partly because I can't actually fit it into anybody's drive. Well, and if that, I did, it would block the house. Now you're living the life of those that build the houses, because usually they're in a static caravan and pregnant normally uh, at most points of the build. Um, I, I mean, there is a serious point behind that question, because I guess what I was getting to is you started with a very thirsty, flamboyant car. Obviously, your cars have got more sensible. Um, is that indicative of a responsibility that you feel for being ecologically aware, for being green, how do you reconcile that with owning old cars and promoting that sustainable way of life in the buildings that you're involved yeah, there's with? There's one word that describes this and makes it easy for me, and that's hypocrisy. No. Um, look, the Federation, I've got to get it right, FHBVC? FBHVC. No, I can never get it right. You were very close. It's a five-letter acronym. How can anybody get a five-letter acronym right? The Federation of British Historical Historic Vehicle, Vehicle Clubs. Club Owners People. <laughs> say that I think something like, is it 2% of all cars on the road or registered on the road are historic? Yeah. And that, on the, by contrast, they, they actually contribute something like blah, 3 billion or some ridiculous amount of money. 8.6 billion. How do you know this? Because I'm the communications director for the FBHVC. <laughs> then you don't need me here. So... Well, I'm really struck by these figures, and, and, um, but actually I'm most struck by the fact, and this is a, a FBHVC plea, really. He's got it now. And it's one I make about buildings, and I make it about cars, is that sustainability is about more than carbon. It's also about copper and concrete, about trees and fish 
about water and it's about equitable fair trade. So it's about actually placing people in the planet in their rightful place and assuming that we can share our resources around, that we have enough to share with future generations. And when you start thinking about it in those terms, actually what we have uh, is of enormous value. And we, the idea of the throwaway society, of course, is something that we're coming to despise in so many aspects of our lives. And to have vehicles which represent the past, which um, may consume fuel, yes, but at the same time also have huge historic value. For me, they have a, an equivalent value, say, as an historic country house or a, an ancient mill, you know, because they show us where we've been. And we, don't, we cannot plot where we are going unless we know where we have been and what has been there along with us on the journey. So, yes, it's a good reason why we shouldn't be restoring what we own to the point where it actually seems new because it carries less of that historical value with it. Um, and I, 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 I seriously think that, um, that the, the value in what we collectively do with these machines adds extraordinary um, value to uh, training and engineering and apprenticeship skills. After all, that's what Vista Heritage is all about. Um, and by the same token, the objects themselves become tokens of that, of that emblematic strive of human beings to, you know, improve, change, alter, make things better. So I, I, I no, I, I, I don't see it at all as contradictory. I think it's actually, it's all part of the fuller definition of what sustainability is about. Ultimately, we can't keep making new things. We have to reuse things, and that's part of the argument as well. Um, for you, Kevin, uh, that's the future of uh, motoring sorted out. What about you? Is there more series in the can? What can we expect to see? <laughs> yes, uh, I have two arms, two legs still. And um, so, um, yeah, I hope so. I mean, because I've got no pension plan, so this is it. I've got to carry on till they shut me out. I, do you know what? And there's something else too. I mean, I, I, so look, my dad retired at 60. He died at 73. Um, he retired at 60 because he saw all his fellow directors in his firm uh, retire at 65, and then at 66 they keeled over. And he thought, if I retire at 60, I've got five years of retirement. He had 13, which still wasn't enough. But I kind of think to myself, if I carry on, this is my theory, if I carry on till I'm 90, like David Attenborough, you know, if they'll have me, I'm, I, that, I can keep going in whatever capacity. And I think um, it, that, first of all, it's good, particularly, I think, for men, who I think biologically are kind of stimulated by that. And the other thing is, I, I, when I go to work every morning, I'm usually in a foul mood when I arrive on location. I've battled through traffic. I've had to do my, I make my own bed. I've had to fill up with water. I've had to, I, I've had to cook my own breakfast and do my own washing up. It's not like staying in a hotel in a camper van. You've got to do everything. I've had to drive there, right? And I've got to be there by 7.30 or wherever it is. And um, anyway, as I get there, not in a good mood. And I nearly always leave at the end of the day not wanting to go. Boyed up, enthused, really excited, stimulated. It's not, I don't call it a job. It's not really a job, what I do. 
it's more a privilege. It's a huge pleasure. And I get to see fantastic places and meet amazing people and feed off that energy. You know, it's great. So as long as it's that way around and I don't end up at the end of the day completely knackered and fed up, I think, you know, that's the way it should be. And that's, that's uh, that, yeah, and uh, that should help me carry on a bit longer as well. Well, it's been a great pleasure and privilege to have you on here with us at the Summer Jaguar Festival. And I hope it's been a lovely day for you as well to uh, enjoy all of the Jaguars. We've got one job for you that we'd like you to do for us. We'd like you to go and have another wander around, Kevin, and come back to us at 2.30, where we'll be uh, presenting the Concourse Awards on this stage and pick out your car of the show. But you've got other judges doing the proper judging. Yeah? It's going to be Kevin's car of the show. Yeah, but that could be that could be a clown car. It could be <laughs> could be anything. There's you no, like. I, I have I, I bear no responsibility for that decision. I'll just choose something I really love. <laughs> could be anything, but I'm sure it will have taken ten years to build, just like everything <laughs> else. Ladies and gentlemen, a big round, please, for Thank Kevin. You. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary. Sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes at the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. So we're just carrying out the final preparation on the car before qualifying, which is in the next hour. So um, we've actually got our first driver's briefing um, since uh, COVID, actually. So that's a bit of a sign that things are going back to some kind of normality in the race world. As always, we always just check the tyre pressures um, and drop them down accordingly when we get to track. Um, we'll make a few little tweaks to the car suspension-wise after the feedback from qualifying. So we'll see how we get on in qualifying and decide if I want to make any car changes from there onwards. But feeling pretty good, um, excited um, to see what we can do around brands. Um, it looks like James Ram isn't here, so the entry list was correct. So I think my biggest competitor is going to be Colin. Although he's in a different class, he is very good around here, being his local service. Circuit. So to be honest with you, I think he's going to be the man to beat round here. So lap time wise, looking at the previous lap times, we haven't been here for about three years. So it's hard to, to judge where we were. I know that a, a quick lap time round here before was in the 55s. I think that was James Ram's winning lap times before. So I would like to, to see somewhere in those realms, um, which will be quite an achievement with a big saloon. So Fingers crossed we can nail that and get a good qualifier because we're going to definitely need it for the race round here. Um, it's a very awkward circuit to overtake on, I always find, so um, we need to bag a good qualifier and it is extra points for us. Well, it is looking fairly close in the championship at the moment. Um, I think I am just about ahead in class um, D, but for the overall championship, it's going to be very, very tight between um, looking like Mike Seaborn is going to be a hard man to beat and also Tom Lempel has been collecting a lot of points up in class C with plenty of uh, of class wins as well so it, it's going to be uh, I think every point's going to count this season so let's see what we can do um, I'll give you a shout after qualifying um, and go through how we got on there and we'll see if we need to make any car setups from there onwards we've just completed qualifying I'm just having a look through the lap times now although we got out quite early 
pretty much within two laps we were back round with cars that were still coming out the the pit exit so it was very awkward to, to get a completely clear lap i didn't really feel like i had a a perfect lap but i'm actually really really pleased with the result we qualified second um overall with the jags um which is fifth overall with everyone that was out there now considering the kind of cars are out there i'm actually really really pleased with that there was 30 cars out there on a short circuit um, and it just felt like I didn't quite get into my rhythm anywhere. Um, obviously, I didn't get time to test here, so I was also kind of relearning brands. So I spent a fair bit of time running up to this weekend looking at YouTube and watching in-car videos to try and uh, remember all the braking points, etc. But un until you're actually out there, it's really hard to work out where you can push it and where you can't. I also felt that um, towards... Um, after about four or five laps i felt the tires were were, were overheating um so we obviously made a slight incorrect judgment there on the tire pressures so that's something that i'm definitely definitely going to change for for the actual race is to just work on those tire pressures they are actually new tires so sometimes when they are new they seem to generate a little bit more heat than they would do ordinarily so um, and also it depends on the track temperature at the time so we're going to dip those down a little bit it seems that the left hand side is a lot hotter than the right hand side that kind of makes sense there's normally more right hand corners so we'll adjust them to suit I'm also just going to make a few small damper changes but I'm not, I'm not going to do too much because the cart felt very good I was getting a little bit of oversteer um, but not too excessive so I'm just going to make a very small adjustment there and then I'll have a bit of a better understanding in the race to see where the car was but Looking at lap times, it's the quickest lap time I've ever achieved round brands. It was a 55 and a half, so I'm really, really happy with that. Colin's done a hell of a lap time, Colin Philpott. He was in the 54s, which I'll be, I'll stand corrected by this, but I don't know of anyone that's break, broken the 55s before in a race or a qualifier with the Jag. So that's a seriously impressive time. He's definitely going to be the man to beat round here. So... He'll be starting on pole, I'll be second. Um, I believe um, with the Burton Power or the Blue Overall Series that we're racing with, I think they're actually going to grid us on lap time rather than two separate races this time. I think the general consensus between all the other drivers that it seemed a lot safer when you're matched on your lap time rather than just your race. There is a lot of fast forward, so if they staggered the race, you would end up getting caught up by some of the quicker cars. So it seems a lot more logical to be gridded on your lap time so that when you're actually racing, Although they might not be in your race technically, you can have a bit of a battle with some other cars. So so that's the plan. So looking at that, that puts us in fifth overall. So we're going to be on the right-hand side of the grid, which I think would be a really good position to be in going into Paddock, which is a notorious uh, corner. So I'll have the inside line for Paddock. So we'll see what we can do. Um, we've got a bit of time before the race, so we're going to take the wheels off and have a look around the car. One of the small pointers I picked up on the car in the end of the session was I had a bit of a vibration, but I did actually have a, a little bit of a moment um, at clearways and just touched the gravel. So I'm just hoping we've just picked up some gravel which was causing that vibration. So I'm going to take all the wheels off. Dan's going to give me a hand. We're going to go through the setup. We're just probably going to take the brake pads out as well, um, mainly because it seemed to be emphasized by the braking and just make sure there's no problems there. And we'll probably just, whilst we're in there, just bleed the fluid and just make sure there's no, nothing there for the race. Other than that, those uh, few small setup changes and go from there. Now, going through the rest of the grid, um, looks like Mike Seaborn is qualified well. He's first in class, I believe. And also Tom Lempful is second in class behind Colin. So those two at the moment are obviously where we're closely led on points. So 
again their race result will affect my overall championship contention as well so um, we'll, we'll see what happens but we can only do what we can do we, we've got to try and get the best result we can overall um, weather wise it's looking to be like it's going to be dry by the radar but we all know what the British weather's like could change at any minute it's definitely going to rain today at some point not sure if it's going to be before our race knowing our luck it'll probably be just as we're about to grid up it will suddenly change to wet but we'll see what we can do so just been called up for race one um, we have found the cause of the vibration um, that was actually um, quite a huge build up of stones on the rear wheel where I'd uh, obviously just touched the gravel trap there so that was fairly sensible to resolve so we've had all the wheels off we've cleaned all of the uh, the rubber marbles and, and stones and rubble that has been caught in the rear disc there where I just come off there shortly I literally just glanced the, the, the gravel trap there but it was enough to to stick to the inside of the wheel there so that was definitely the cause of the vibration and we've also just taken the front pads out um, and just put filed an edge onto those because you could just see that there's a, a stone that had just caught on that front disc there it hasn't damaged the disc luckily we got away pretty lightly so that was obviously the the braking vibration i was also uh, feeling so let's see what we can do really excited fingers crossed that's race one finished and i'm really really happy the result we, we ended up in second uh, in class um, in the Jaguars so uh, Colin did did unfortunately beat us um, but I have to say he was absolutely flying uh, the lap times that he was doing and the consistency were really really good we, I just didn't have quite enough to, to get past him we we stayed with him for a good few laps and I thought there might be a chance to potentially get him going into paddock corner um, but it just didn't happen I actually had a, a bit of a close call with the the, the mark 2 Zach speed that was out there he had a, a spin in front of me actually and uh, I couldn't see him until I actually started to break going into to paddock bend as I realised he was in the middle of the circuit, I actually locked up slightly and I got quite a lot of oversteer. Um, and it's probably the closest I've ever had to having a, a major accident with him just shooting across in front of me. And we missed him by what seemed like millimetres. Now, I've just had a look at the in-car footage and it's it's a proper flinch moment. It's uh, It was extremely, extremely close coming down there. So that actually um, gave Colin a good chunk of breathing room and, and I just couldn't get it back. I, I tried and tried and tried. I felt as if I was losing um, a little bit on Colin each time on clearways, which is coming onto the to the main pit straight. He just seemed to get a much better drive out of there. I'm guessing it's the way the XJS turns. I just couldn't get the saloon turned as quickly as he can. And back on the power, we then just suffered with oversteer coming out. So I will pop that video up on YouTube if you want to see it. It's absolutely unbelievable. I don't really know how I missed him. Um, it's one of those moments that just as I hit the bottom of paddock the car seemed to suddenly grip again and and veer me in the other direction just to clear it was a bit of a a blink moment and thought I honestly thought that was the end of the mark two but um, no other than that it was a really really trouble free race car did feel really good just like I said suffering a little bit of oversteer coming onto that straight other than that it felt really really good but just didn't have quite enough to get past Colin but either way Colin's not in my class he's in class C um, and I'm in class D which is a fully modified class so I did win the class overall so I am really happy with that um, and that's second overall we did make up a position position overall Colin actually uh, ended up third overall and I was fourth so we did make it in front of one of the, the mark one escorts there so um, but yeah it was a bit of a lone race to be honest with you um, just couldn't quite build, um, bridge the gap between Colin but I had some fun coming up on some of the other Fords which was a bit of a good fun in the battle there but no, um, we've got race um, two, which is tomorrow, 
so we've got a fair bit of time this afternoon to have a look over the car and check for any problems um, I don't think there is car felt really really good so we might just see if we can find a little bit a little bit of a better damper setup or maybe change the geometry slightly to try and equate for this a little bit of oversteer we're getting to see if I can uh, just bridge that gap for race two so we will be on the other side of the track for race two because it will be from our qualifying results for race one so we might be able to to, to do something on the outside of Colin um, as I got away I got away pretty good on the start but he just come across around me had a much better drive so I couldn't even uh, get in front of him off the start there but no I'm, I'm generally really happy with that result as I've said before Brands isn't the best suited car for my for, for my vehicle and it's not a track I've done a huge amount of time at so I am generally really pleased with that result and the lap times were pretty consistent as well um, the quickest lap time I did in the race was a 55.6 so slightly slower than qualifying which is interesting um, but I know there's some more time to be found right now I've just got to work out where it is well Tom was handed the win in race two when Colin's car failed to start and was pulled off the grid with technical issues so Tom went on to win race two at Brands Hatch not usually how he'd like to win a race. He usually likes to have a good old fight and win fair and square. But he'll be back next week to detail how he's getting ready for the next round on August the 30th at Cadwell Park. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JC Podcast via www.jcpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.